The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales Episode 18, Souls in Gossamer biology lab, Rosamond seemed pleased with Isabel's account of the way she told Tam Lin. After all he had been through, girl, the spider said softly, there is no way he could have returned to a normal mortal life, especially not with her. And the clue to a bittersweet enduring rather than a happy ending lies in the last part of the ballad anyway. The queen said what she would have done to Tamlin had she known in advance of Janet's intervention in his fate. By the end she did know, so there's every reason to believe she would not hesitate to enact her revenge on Janet's offspring. And the world has been shaped and run and broken by men with stone hearts and unseeing eyes for a very long time, she concluded. You are very wise, Majesty, Isabel agreed. And now I have to go to the paleo lab to continue the research for my dissertation, and so your carriage awaits. She opened the transport cage door, and Rosamond obligingly swept gracefully inside. How is that going? Rosamond asked. Are you finding your truth and beauty among the old bones? Intriguing puzzles rather than truth. Isabel mused, and my brother Owen tells me regularly that beauty is something I will never find, certainly not in a mirror. Morally, child, your brother is a cross between a stink bug and a slug, Rosamond pronounced. Ah, so you've met, Isabel laughed. I have many eyes, Rosamond answered with what could only be described as a cascading wink, and a large mm, network. I am familiar with your brother and his kind. How do you know so much about the fair folk? Isabel asked. I wouldn't have thought that they were a spider's concern. Who do you think weaves the veil and keeps it in good repair? Rosamond doubled over with whispery laughter. When she had recovered herself, she said, Spider silk, fallen starlight, and the last mortal breath of those who wander into the realm of their own accord. That's what the veil is made of. Are there a lot of those? People who happen upon fairy rather than those who are captured, I mean, Isabel asked. A fair few. The last shining light before the dark isn't always a glimpse of heaven, Rosamond said gently. But the Queen of Elfland is a piece of work, so where we can... We wrap the most fragile souls in gossamer, that their eternities be kind. Your Jack is one such, I feel. He's not my Jack, but you may be right, Isabel replied. I fear he's probably not anybody's. Oh, he is, he just can't remember whose. And I meant your, as in your friend, your concern. Your Lucas is tough as old boots, though, a match for that Mara, Rosamond sniffed indignantly. 
Isabel noted with some relief that Mara's name wasn't prefaced with any sense of belonging to or with her or any of the others, but she didn't say anything. She's another piece of work, that one. Be careful, Rosamond warned. I still can't figure out what she's getting out of the group. She's only told a couple of times, comments sparingly, and signs off as soon as we are done, as far as I know. She started this whole thing. I presume she's engaged with the stories, but I don't know why. A thoughtful question formed in Isabel's mind. Rosamond? Yes, child. Why couldn't you save Tam Lin? Was he not a gentle soul? He wasn't mine to save, and the weave of the world needs the knots and tears of one of his line, when the stone heart breaks and the wooden eyes see true. Isabel would have to think about that. Why did you say that of Lucas, that he is tough and a match for Mara? Isabel asked. He burns very brightly, that one. It takes a lot to tell oneself through a story. You should try it sometime, child. Most mortals would tell you life is short. Rosamond's bright eyes closed. The queen slept, dreaming her wise, multifaceted dreams. As she worked on her research, Isabel thought of what Rosamond had said about Lucas and Jack. Lucas's story had been about a greedy king, a princess, an archer, and his faithful horse, and a firebird, which, as far as Isabel knew, was a mythical creature in Russian folklore that was something like a phoenix, except they weren't subject to a lengthy, all-consuming cycle of rebirth. Rosamond had said that Lucas had told himself through the story, and that took courage. What part of his fantastical tale was him? Isabel wondered. She also wondered about Jack. What did Rosamond mean that Jack had forgotten whose he was? That was different from not knowing who you were or where you belonged. Rosamond's words implied being part of a community, a system or world of other interconnected and interdependent people, and then not remembering the collective group that he had been part of or how to get back to them. That was different from forgetting one's roots or family, or trying to. Isabel knew all about that. Not remembering implied seeking unsuccessfully, and then carrying about a certain amount of trauma in the failure. And what about the tapestry of the world needing the disruptions and complications of Janet and Tamlin's offspring? That, as the old spider had said, the weave of the world needs the knots and tears of one of his line when the stone heart breaks and the wooden eyes see true. That sounded kind of like prophecy or something. Isabel suspected that a lot of people felt unconnected and dispossessed in the world at the moment. Technology could only simulate so much. That might be why she enjoyed their weekly text-based stories and talking to Jack and Lucas in the days between. It was a little old-fashioned, like having pen pals. You had to put thought and a little artistry, a bit of yourself or what you wanted to become, into what you told. You had to think, not just sound off. Isabel's research and related interests had trained her not just to react to things. If you did that in her field, therein madness lay. You could jump to conclusions that there be dragons, though Isabel quite liked dragons, actually. 
she suspected that Slavic dragons might be quite fascinating, a folkloric link between the storied though admittedly extinct western species and the ubiquitous oriental varieties that hid in plain sight on every pillar and post. Maybe that's what Rosamond meant about Lucas. He had the courage to tell his story through the tales he told. Suddenly inspired, Isabel thought it might be time she did the same. She had a small library of books, they took up less than two makeshift shelves in her new digs, that were unconnected to her dissertation research or her undergraduate preparation. One was part of a multi-volume set, a cheap reprint of a famous Scottish and English ballad collection. Another was a book of commentary at least as well known, but older. She turned to the ballad that bore her family's name and soon found herself transported east of the sun and west of the moon to Scandinavia, pursued by enchanted wolves and bears. When it came time to tell her story, Isabel described a great four-sided mirror shaped from above like a cross. Each of you will see reflected part of the tale, she explained as Adlind and my telling will bring it all together for you, I hope, though it is very old and much travelled, so I might not get to its end, or the one I intend, tonight. Once there was a young girl of a noble house who lived with her parents and brother in happiness and peace, or at least it was mostly so, the brother being older and visiting upon his younger sister such small cruelties of speech and action that he could devise and execute whenever their mother, nurse, or governess wasn't watching. Because the girl was often in the company of her mother and the other women of the household who doted upon her, she felt secure despite the occasional abuse of her sibling, her tears and pains soon forgotten. Her father loved her well, and though he was aware of his son's poor treatment of his sister, whom he should have cherished and protected, he forbore to punish him because he was his only son, and as he often said, boys will be boys, and the girl will know the cruelty of the world ere she's wed. But in an effort to try and spare his daughter some pain and further his son's career and fame as he grew to manhood, her father sent her brother to the king's court to be fostered, that he might learn the ways of a knight. For in truth he was a noble-looking youth, even if his nobility did not extend to his heart or character. Although the girl's mother understood why her son was sent away, and saw that it was both an advantage to her lad and a relief to her daughter, she was broken-hearted when he left, ceasing to take care of her health, rarely eating and giving little thought to whether she was rested or cold, her waking thoughts spent in worry for her absent son, except for those few blessed hours when her daughter was permitted to see her. With such negligence of body and spirit, the first winter had not passed before the mother sickened and died. The Yuletide feast was a shadow of its usual brightness that year, and the new year whispered itself in almost apologetically. Before the year of mourning was done, however, the girl's father was betrothed and married again. He told his daughter her new mother had bewitched him in his sorrow and that she should offer every help and kindness to her. 
Despite the girl's own noble standing in the household and her tender years, the father's new bride convinced him to let all the servants go and make his daughter her only handmaiden. The girl wept her last tears as she helped her old nurse carry her bundle to the outer gate and secure it on her bent back. She felt completely alone. She served her stepmother hand and foot because such service made the days pass more quickly. To better train her away from pride and finery, the stepmother had the girl dressed simply and given a bed in the meanest room of what had been the servants' quarters. She was given enough food to allow her to work without sickening, and her father was discouraged from seeing her. Despite these hardships, the girl grew in beauty as if all the graces of heaven attended upon her. The stepmother grew jealous. On the rare formal occasions when the father did find himself in his daughter's company, at church on high holy days or during the seasonal feasts and gatherings that were his duty to hold as laird, he marveled at how fine she was, remarking to his wife that the girl had become the very image of her mother. They had no children as the years went on, and the girl's stepmother was somewhat unsure of her position in the event that her laird died leaving beloved healthy offspring from his first marriage. She had heard that her stepson had risen in court beyond expectations, that the king himself had adopted him, having no living male heir due to tragedies of pestilence and war. The laird's bonny, canny wife resolved to ensnare the son when she could and ensorcel the daughter now who was fully at her disposal. In preparation for the day when her stepson might return, she decided to try her wiles on her husband's stable hand. He was a handsome and honest young lad called John who was not dismissed with the rest of the manor's servants when the laird's new bride cleaned house. He doesn't live up at the big house, but in a wee cot close by the stables, and I need the skills he has so he stays on, her husband had insisted. For his part, the young lad John loved the laird's fair daughter, though he had never confessed his feelings, nor shown her any unseemly behavior, treating her still as a fine lady, rather than the lowly tote-and-fetch-it her stepmother had made her. When his mistress tried to seduce him, John refused her as firmly and respectfully as he could manage. We'll see how well you can groom horses or break hearts as a bear, he raged, anger distorting her fine, cold features. John fled into a cave near a tarn, whose icy, clear waters fed into a stream where fish ran plentifully. And so he thought to end his days. The spell his mistress had set on him was variable. He was a man again sometimes, but he never knew when the bear shape would take hold of him, so he knew he would be unable to live again amongst men. The laird's daughter found John in his exile, and he explained to her the nature of his enchantment. She was unafraid, staying with him for whatever time she could under the pretense of carrying water or bringing home fish to prepare for her parents' supper. 
the mirror had described parts of the story to each listener and served curiously to amplify or underscore certain features of the story that were different for each person. The Decameron shuffled, five of clubs. Isabel would continue next time. Lucas was thrilled, and Jack was hooked as well, seeing some underlying Scandinavian threads in this Celtic tale that formed a pattern he didn't yet understand, but found intriguing. Mara wasn't so easily bedazzled, though it was promising to be a good yarn. Adeline, she asked into the public chat, what was the name of the laird's daughter? Isabel, Moot supplied. Instead of wishing that the earth would open up and swallow her, Isabel wished that the veil might open and let her pass, her soul deemed gentle enough for gossamer. A fly on the wall might have missed Isabel's momentary tears as she logged off, distracted as it would have been by the whispering invective streaming from the scarlet spider watching over her shoulder. Rosamond was not amused. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council. <laughs>